Welcome to Real Money Talks. Real strategies from the money makers and the world changers that you can use to make millions, keep those millions, multiply your wealth, and build your team. Here's your host, author of five New York Times bestsellers, money expert on Dr. Phil, CNN, CNBC, The Street TV, Fox News, and The View, Laurel Langmire. Hi, this is Laurel. Welcome back to Laurel's Real Money Talks, the podcast talking about how to make money. How do you keep money? How do you invest money? And how do you use your team? So essentially the millionaire matrix, any of those conversations that uh, we enjoy and we talk about here on our podcast. So today I have a, a very, not only dear friend, I call her my financial mom, Sharon Lecter's with me today. Super excited to uh, share what she's got going on in her new book. So uh, Sharon, welcome to Laurel's Real Money Talks. Thank you, my dear friend. I'm so absolutely thrilled and proud of you and honored to be with you today. And thanks for the opportunity. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of people think they might know your history, but what would you say? I mean, to me, you know, I always brag about you and like you really were the, you know, the impetus behind the Rich Dad, Poor Dad brand, right? I mean, I was running around doing the game, as you know, now making it up, um, doing the best that I could, you know, figuring that out. And you really put that book on the map from uh, all the infrastructure. And then as you grew the company, talk a little bit about just your not only history there, but I don't even know if people know you're a CPA. Like, give them all your creds and how amazing you are. <laughs> well, thanks, Laurel. I appreciate that. I'll try and give the Cliff Notes version because obviously I've been around a long time. But uh, yeah, I actually grew up in a very a lower middle class entrepreneurial home. And we lived in a very small house between my dad's used car lot and my mom's beauty shop. And we had rental properties that at 10 years old, I was having to go scrub out bathrooms between tenants. I hated it. I swore I would never be an entrepreneur. I was going to be a sophisticated professional. So I got my degree in accounting. I was young, single in the city of Atlanta with a big eight, the back then, big eight accounting firm. I thought it was hot stuff. And about the ripe old age of 25, I was working in godly hours and said, this is kind of crazy. I'm working for someone else. And all of a sudden, my parents started looking a lot smarter. So for all of you with teenage kids, there is hope when you get they get about 25, you start looking smarter. And that's when I had an offer from a client to leave public accounting and, and go into the world of entrepreneurship. And he was buying a company out of bankruptcy. So I still remember doing the, the whole pros and cons on the yellow legal pad and couldn't I could argue both sides didn't help me a bit, but my hand took off and wrote across the top of the page. Why not? Why not do something different? Why not go the path less traveled? Why not solve a problem or serve a need? And that really kicked me off on my entrepreneurial journey. Um, I started a woman's magazine and sold that. I started this industry, the talking children's book industry, where I learned the power of association because we had this new technology in the late 80s, but Nobody knew who we were, and kids didn't have technology. So we partnered with Disney, Warner Brothers, Sesame Street, Marvel Comics, and exploded in a positive way around the world. I learned so much from that. And then we moved, sold that company, and I came to Arizona. My oldest son got into credit card debt in college. I was pretty mad at him, but was more mad at myself because I thought I'm a taught him about money. But that was December of 92 when I dedicated the rest of my career to financial literacy. So you go fast forward a little bit. Yep. which was the birth of the game where we met you and Robert had gone to see Michael for patent protection. And Michael said, you need to meet my wife. And so I was at the very first beta test of the game when it was drawn out on a piece of paper. 
the only one that got out of the rat race. And I said, this needs to get out because it was what I teach and what you teach, the power of buying, building, creating income, producing assets. And so I volunteered to help him commercialize the game. And in that process, he said that he wanted to charge $200 for it. And I thought, that's pretty pricey, 1996. And so I said, you should write a brochure. And that's when he asked me to be his partner. And that brochure was Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Yeah. Nobody understands that, that. We never expected this to take on a life of its own. Certainly not to be in over 100 countries, 50 languages. But that started a 10-year relationship where we were partners in the company. I was a CEO and helped expand it around the world. And that one book turned into 15 books that we wrote together. And during that process, understanding how to provide the tools for people to take control of their financial life. And at the very beginning, you were there helping us promote the game and Um, get the word out there while you were creating your own gig and doing your own things. And so it was a perfect way for people to understand the power of mentorship, the power of association, the power of alignment. And when I left Rich Dad in 2007, um, Robert and I were no longer aligned with what we wanted to do. And that's when I got the call from President Bush. And I served President Bush on the very first President's Advisory Council on Financial Literacy, which was an awesome opportunity. And I served both President Bush and Obama. And then shortly after that, the call from the Napoleon Hill Foundation. So it helped me step into that arena after having built the largest personal finance arena to be asked to step into the world's largest personal development arena was also an incredible opportunity. And I wrote Three Feet from Gold, Outwitting the Double, Thinking Grow Rich for Women, and Success is Something Greater. Kind of brings me to today and my new book, Exit Rich, but I love you. And that's probably enough of my story for everyone. (laughs) So how did Exit Rich come about? Because, uh, you know, I know you are well into this and, you know, we have a lot going on and all of a sudden you popped out this book and I'm like, what? What happened? So how did that book come about? Because I, and it's so critical. What's fun about you and I is we're together together and then we go off and do a project. Like I have my Make Your Kids Millionaires book, which I need you to forward um, and be involved in that, um, obviously, and bless it because I love your and appreciate and respect your opinion. But now we both have books. Mine won't be now because I'm going through a publisher till the beginning of January. So all of you out there listening, stay tuned. That'll be a Q1 launch. But right now, Sharon is in her launch. So what was the impetus of the Exit Rich book? Great question, because it's actually the power of association from the other direction. David Corbin, a dear friend of mine, called me and said, you know, Michelle Soller Tucker is working on this book, and I really think you need to be involved in it. And Michelle is the top female business broker in the country. She's a mergers and acquisitions specialist. And she had started working on this book, and it wasn't titled Exit Rich. I think it was a different title at the time. And we knew each other for years from being on different stages. But I started talking to her and I said, yeah, I think this is a good thing for me to add. I've I've written 26 books. So this is the first book that really is talking about. I have a program called Essential Components of a Successful Business. But it talks about how people own a job, not a business. And they need to build the foundation around the business and find that valuation. So it talks about the six P's, the people, your mentors, the people who are on your team, the people who are strong, where you're weak, the processes, business systems. That's what allows your business to scale. That's what allows you to manage your business, not personalities, manage the systems. And then the proprietary, what is your unique um, selling proposition? What is your competitive advantage? That's all value, that intangible 
property. That's my superpower. I help people create intellectual property. I help them identify their proprietary information, protect it, and leverage it. And then your patrons, your database, all right? Too many people, they're all excited because they have a million followers on Instagram. They're not yours. Yeah, so it's great to have that. That's lead generation. But you got to invite them home. You got to give them a reason to come to your database because that's incredible value. That's lifetime value. And then the sixth P is profit. Too many people just focus on the product and the profit. They don't build the foundation of the business. And so we want, we came together. Michelle is the tactician. This is what you do. And I talk about from a mentor's perspective, the psychology, the mindset behind it, and also from an investor's perspective. So if you want to invest in a company, Rich gives you the tools to really do the due diligence to see if they actually have done what they need to, to protect that business. If you want to sell your business, it's a perfect way for you to get pretty and get ready. And when you're starting your business, you should be thinking about your exit when you start so that you build a business, not a job. So let's kind of dig into each of these a little bit that most people who start, like I remember leaving Chevron and jumping over to the cash flow game, right? And you you watched me straddle that for years because Chevron was paying me so much, even though it wasn't enjoyment, it was, you know, one heck of a contract and then starting this. So for me, when you say, well, start a company, I mean, most people are just replacing their paycheck first. And then when they get into the business, it's just, can it pay my bills, right? And I just think, I don't even know what the percent is, but I would say more than 50% of entrepreneurs are in the, will it just pay my bills or am I getting some passion out of it? But Probably not higher. Even, even higher. Like they don't think I'm in it and I'm going to get out of it. I think of all our hundreds of thousands of clients, it's all about the get in. And I mean, how many people even talk about getting out? Yeah. Well, it's, it's not a topic that people talk. It's just like people don't talk about money, Laurel. But the, you know, the issue is when I talk about exit rich, it's also, you don't need to exit your company, but if you build the right systems and you have the right people in your company, you get your time back because mm-hmm. you've got people running your systems. And that gift of time is your exit. You're exiting rich because you got this economic engine here generating the cash flow that you need to live the lifestyle you desire. And because you're so efficient at bringing in the right people and the right systems, you're getting your time back to start looking at other things that you want to do, other projects, other investments. That's the best way to exit rich. So talk about some of the, uh, and, and again, I'm kind of thinking intellectual property, but I'm also thinking accounting. Like there's a lot to the exit in a sale. I have clients right now that are selling a variety of clients that are selling their company. And, you know, as I look at what they've done, they've made a whole variety of mistakes. Talk to those mistakes that could have been prevented if they had some forethought, at least, what do you and Michelle recommend? Three years before you sell? I mean, we share a lot of mistakes in this book. <laughs> we <laughs> highlight a lot of mistakes that people made along the way that cost them millions of dollars. Share, share some. Let's tell some. Like, yeah, yeah mistakes that are, you, yeah. you know we talk about people that did not have the contracts in place, did not have people that thought they owned a huge software, which is a big piece of their company, and they didn't have a work for hire agreement. So when they went to sell, the company said, "No, you don't." own it. The person you hired owns it. So I had to go back to try and renegotiate that deal. That guy was pretty smart. No, 
pony up. And so it's so important to understand what you need to have in place to secure the rights and ownership of your intellectual property. Other people where they just, somebody wants to buy them, they come in and they've been using their company bank account as their own personal checkbook, right? You know, their kids' cars are in there, their cars, their vacations, their country club membership, you know, it's like, it's a mess. And so we talk about that is very often the case in a company where there's a primary owner, but you have to start cleaning that up and separate it into what the financials look without that. So that if you really want to sell, it's clean. Because what happens is you have a sales price here. Somebody comes in, they start finding a mess, that sales price comes down. They start finding not good record keeping, that sales price comes down. And so if you want the price up here, you need to make sure that you've got yourself dressed up with lipstick on with all the stuff done, right? All those documents in place, all the agreements in place. So when their team comes in, they're impressed. And you know what happens? Sometimes the price goes up because they realize the value that they're getting and the fact that they're buying something that has been taken care of and is appropriately put together. So other mistakes, what about intellectual property? Let's kind of go down each of these from the people mistakes, the process, like if you go down the six, you know, maybe some tips, to ensure that they're going to do their business properly. But the mistakes to avoid, I'm asking questions because I know what my clients would ask. That's what they're probably most concerned about and going, oh my gosh, I haven't even thought about that. I haven't thought about that. I haven't thought about that. Well, most people haven't really identified what intellectual property they have. When you discover a unique way of solving a problem, that's intangible. All right. So the vast majority of valuation of companies today is invaluable. 40 years ago, companies were 15% intangible, 85% bricks and mortar. Mm. Today, it's the inverse, 85 to 90% intangible, 10 to 15% hard assets, which allows us to be on a better competitive field. But think of Airbnb, right? Largest residential with no ownership of buildings. Uber, Large transportation company owns no vehicles. And so that whole concept of where we're headed in today's world is understanding the value of those intangible assets. And most people don't identify them. And when you sell a company, there's this big fat number called goodwill. Well, that goodwill is all those intangible assets, your reputation. And unless you've done a good job highlighting it and protecting it, that goodwill number gets smaller, smaller, and smaller. So understanding who you are in the industry and what your service is that's intangible, the better you can define that, outline it, and protect it, the higher price you're going to get. And so obviously, you know, your husband, Michael, is an amazing uh, intellectual property lawyer. What are some of the beginning stages of intellectual property? Uh, I mean, obviously, books are obvious, right? Web pages like content seems obvious, but speak to more of that, like processes are can be either patent or, or trademarked or, you know, service marks. So let's talk a little bit more to that beginning entrepreneur out there that's not seeing what they really have. Well, think of Rich Dad. What do you think of color-wise? Purple, right? So when we first came out with Rich Dad, all the publishers told us finance books are red, black, or green. Can't be purple. And I go, that's why we want purple. My why not philosophy. Why not? We wanted to stand out. And so you go into bookstores, the few that are left today, what do you see? A lot of purple, 
So understanding from the very beginning, positioning yourself to be able to identify who you are. It's not just the trademarks, but the trade dress. You know, when you think of purple, black and gold books and money, it's rich dad. Putting a stake in the ground as to who you are and how you stand up. When I say a brown truck, who do you think of? UPS. And so defining yourself in the same way is very important and your business. What is it? You know, how are you answering the phone? What is your system for taking an order? What is your system for cu- customer service, shipping? Um, how are you processing that? And every step along the way, how can you make it better and understand that that's something that you have a competitive advantage over everyone else in your business, because that's how you build a business. I mean, my husband and I have something called the essential components of a successful business. All right. Your mission, the problem you solve, the need you serve, your leadership, your ability to be a leader and your team. Very important. But understand it's not the team. It's the roles they play. That's the system, not the individuals. Don't manage people, manage systems. And then the legal foundation, you don't build a house without going down first. And that's where most companies fall apart. They don't want to spend the money for an attorney. And so instead of spending it up front, they spend a hundred times that trying to clean up a mess later. And then your available resources, you don't need money to make money, other people's money, time, resources, relationships and communications and marketing, your ability, how you communicate that generates intellectual property. And then your business systems, the deliverable, your product or services at the very top, every one of those categories creates intellectual property. And together, they create your competitive advantage. And the more you identify it and understand it and codify it, the greater the valuation you have in your business. Now, Sharon, I'm going to switch gears because our, you know, we've got like 25, 30 minutes in our podcast. So I got to go, go, go. So people, I think that's always a big question, right? So you've trained them, they're organizing systems. Tell us what you write about. How does somebody think about, I'm going to acquire a business? Are the people going with them? Do you sell the staff? I mean, how do, how do the people part of this work? I, I have that question a lot. Yeah, well, we go really into that in a heavy way inside the book, Exa Rich, because it's so important that as a business owner that you want to sell your business, it's really important to keep it quiet, keep it confidential, because people hear about it in your team and they start exiting. You don't want that, all right? But at the same time, as a business owner who values the contribution your team has made, my recommendation is that as a business owner wanting to sell, that you protect your people and that you make sure that they have a continuing engagement or they have a golden parachute so that you can give them the ability and the benefit of what they've done. One of my dear friends and one of the clients that I've helped along the way, Brendan Dawson, he sold Audigy for $151 million. But he, within that sales process, he ensured all of his employees had continued employment plus giant bonuses. All of his clients, all of the companies that were part of it got part of the proceeds. And today, he's, you know, within the next month or so, his, his ongoing commitment for after the sale, I think four or five years is coming to an end, but all of his people are still there and still contributing. And he went from that company went from one to 4 billion in revenue. That's how you exit properly. With grace and with gratitude. And that's what so many sales, when people are selling their companies, they forget the gratitude part and don't take care of the people that have helped them get to where they are. So talk about 
like multiples. How does somebody get to a sales price? And I guess I'm probably speaking more specifically about what Michelle does is using a broker. I see a lot of people, you know, just want to put up, like you said, you know, privately and quietly on the street. I've seen it both ways, but I always lean and inclined to use a broker because I've just seen the valuations and the numbers that they get tend to be so much higher than an individual just putting it out privately and trying to get a sale. Well, they're bringing in all that experience on how to dress you up and make sure you have all the documentation in place. And it's not just dressing up, but it's making sure you've done your homework. And and if there's a skeleton, you bring it right out and and identify it and figure out how to deal with it. And that's the benefit of a broker. Plus, they have ready, set buyers. They know who to reach out to in in your industry. And it's also industry specific. All right. Some industries, maybe it's four times EBITDA right? Other times, it's three times annual gross sales. They're all different. And so, you have to understand what other companies in your industry have have sold for, what kind of multiples. But even more importantly, is understanding what your expectation is. There's a lot of times where a business owner, they may even have 10 million in annual revenue, but they figure, well, I want 10x, I want 100 million. But their whole company is dependent on them. Yeah. And so it's like, uh, you're not going to get it. You know, and it's sometimes it's a sobering conversation or somebody else, you know, they have a business and they're running completely off independent contractors with no kind of guarantee that they're staying on. That's a wobbly company that Very. somebody buying is going to want some sort of certification, some sort of guarantee that the structure and the systems in there are going to continue to operate. And I think that is getting, I shouldn't say worse and worse, but more more prevalent. prevalent. And well, and I teach it, you know, I only have two other employees besides me. I mean, most of them of all, we call it graduate, Mm because it's not really quit. But you know, you can't listen to obviously our conversation about being incorporated, being your own, right, and really setting up your own business. So all of my what used to be employees, except for two, are now on their own. How do you give some tips to that? Because I mean, I'm a huge proponent of contract this infrastructure. But to that point, when you exit, of those contracts, I know for a lot of them are very prevalent to me. They're not just working for integrated wealth. They're working for Laurel Langmire as well. So right. how does somebody navigate, especially in this prevalent space of contractual relationships to build a system? Well, the first step is when you have somebody as an independent contractor, it is so important to have a written agreement that specifies your intellectual property, anything that they develop for you, you own, and that is a work for hire if you're paying them to do something. That's where a lot of people get into trouble and people lose tons of money or potential buyers walk away because you haven't done your homework. And when you have an organization with independent contractors or independent salespeople and you're trying to sell, you need to have agreements with every single one of them. And what I do with people that are preparing to sell, I say, you know, let's get the sales part of your package with them is that you will negotiate with all of them that they will remain for X number of time. You don't want to do it ahead of time because they may leave, but you want to, you know, you want to make a commitment that you're going to help keep that business solid because the buyer more than likely will have a buyout and they will say there's certain performance criteria. So I'm going to pay you $50 million for your company. I'm going to give you $10 million up front. And if these revenue goals are met, you will get the rest so that there's an ongoing commitment to maintain that level of business and help it grow for that buyout when you have that kind of structure. 
And then the big, I'm going to say, it's not even an elephant in the room, but it is so obvious. And I feel like I scream it from the rooftops and it's becoming, and I'm going to use our segmentation, but the millennials and a lot of the younger generation are all making, I mean, think about the amount of people that are making a fortune on just social following. And you said it earlier, social followers. It's interesting because you can make a case to say there are millionaires that have YouTube followers, that have TikTok followers, that have now made a brand, but they don't have a database. Mm -hmm. But that database, I know, and when I was 21 years old, and I will never forget the place that I was. I was at the Hard Rock Casino Hotel in Las Vegas. And Bob Proctor said, young lady, because I had all these business cards and, you know, I'm 21, totally clueless. He said, the person with the biggest database wins. And I didn't actually know what the hell that meant, but my God, do I know after hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars now, what that really means is to pull them into your own controlled communication structure. So you kind of make a case both ways, Sharon. I think you and I are from the school of, you know, bring them into a database. What do you tell people in XO Rich about that whole database versus followers? And, you know, the other thing that I just got to add one more other complication I was in a big clubhouse uh, the other day and we had so much DMing going on. They actually shut my Instagram down for 24 hours because we were too active. Right. So, you know, I don't care how many thousands of followers I was down for 24 hours. So you got all these like pros and cons of going both ways. What do you talk about next at Rich? Well, I just use one word, sustainable. All right. Yes. There's a lot of people that have millions of followers on Instagram, on Facebook. I had my personal Facebook profile hacked. I cannot get it back. All right. So those 5,000 people are gone to me and I can't communicate with them. Same thing. People have their Instagram shut down. I have my author page, which has 56, 7,000 people got hijacked by the same people. I was able to get that one back. All right. So I luckily I still have that page, but so many people lose their Facebooks completely. They have their Instagram shut down and you have no access. Plus in today's world with their algorithms, you send something out through Facebook or through Instagram. You don't know how many people are actually going to get it. Yeah. So if you can give them a gift and entice them to come home to your database, you own those names and your valuation goes up and you have the ability to reach out to all of them. You can't guarantee they're going to open an email, but you have the ability to reach out to all of them and continue to maintain that relationship and have a lifetime value of customers. There's no algorithm keeping you from communicating with them. And so, yes, there's a lot of people out there making a lot of money through YouTube and Instagram and, and, you know, God love them. Fantastic. But is it sustainable because they're not in control of their destiny? Those platforms are. So if you want control of your destiny, you want to have a business that can be sustainable. You want to bring them home. Yes. You want all those platforms. That's your lead gen, but bring them home to your database. Always. So speaking of that, we're going to bring you home, all of you listeners, and give you an opportunity to uh, buy Exit Rich and uh, continue inside of Sharon's conversation. And uh, always inside mine, you go to asklaurel.com, and that's where you can ask any question, make a request. And then um, the book is twenty four ninety five. you said? twenty four ninety seven advance. Um, the link um, Laurel's going to give you. It comes out in June, but you will get the digital copy right away. And then we will send the copy to you in June because I like to disrupt the publishing industry. So we're making sure you get get it ahead of time electronically, but then you'll get the hard copy mailed to you if you take action. 
Exactly. So you're going to go to uh, asklaurel.com forward slash Sharon. You're going to follow Sharon on this and you're going to go get a copy of My Free Millionaire Maker. I'm going to give a bonus book and you're going to go to the link and buy Sharon and Michelle's Exit Rich book and study it thoroughly. I, I have a feeling I have a, I've seen it. I put my hands on it for a minute, but I have a feeling it's one of those books that when, you know, a few months from now, it's going to have all those little like tabs and handwritten all over it and probably a workbook that you're going to or some sort of a journal you're going to you know start capturing. So really important to those of you that have a business that you, uh, even if you don't exit right now, just have these processes. I think also, I'm just going to say it this way, Sharon. I think they're not even exit already when you have it in their 10-year horizon. I know what's in the content of this book will shape up how they're operating today. One idea can add incredible valuation or add sales because it's helping you streamline your operations. For $24.97, I guarantee you'll find one, two, three, four things that will make you a, a better business owner and more profitable in the long run. Whether you're exiting or not, I'm just going to keep reinforcing that. So those mm-hmm. of you do not hear this and say, well, I'm not exiting for a long time. I don't need this now. Oh, no, you need this in your head. You need it around your thinking and it will, will clean up whether you sell or not. Or even if you're transferring to your kids, all of these processes need to be in place. Yeah, for generational wealth. Do you want to have to be running your company the day you die? I don't think so. I think you want to structure your business so it can become an economic engine that supports you and your family for generations or something that you absolutely have the opportunity to sell to a much bigger player. Absolutely. Sharon, it's great as always to be with you and uh, hang out with you. As uh, my son said earlier, um, we're going to have to get you and Michael out to Georgia Southern to watch a football game. And Love uh, it. Can't wait. Be super Love fun. you all. Thank Love you. Love you. Thanks, Sharon. Again, go to askworld.com forward slash Sharon and uh, get the book. And I'm going to put one of my books in as a bonus. And uh, we will see you on the next episode of Laurel's Real Money Talks. Talk soon. Thanks for listening to the Real Money Talks podcast. Your host has been Laurel Langmeyer, author of five New York Times bestsellers, money expert on Dr. Phil, CNN, CNBC, The Street TV, Fox News, and The View. Want to learn more about off-Wall Street investing, tax strategies, and multi-million dollar business strategies? Visit liveoutloud.com slash podcast for past episodes, show notes, and resources. For some special wealth building gifts only for Laurel's podcast listeners, visit liveoutloud.com slash podcast gifts. Do you have a burning question for Laurel? Visit asklaurel.com to submit your question, and it may just be covered on a podcast episode. So stay tuned and be sure to subscribe to get new episodes every week. We'll be right back.